Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. Hear now the word of God. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, who in here has ever heard or used the phrase, just listen for that still, small voice? A few? If you grew up going to church for a long time or you had a mom that really wanted you to be quiet sometimes, you probably heard that phrase a few times, just like I did. Um, But it really is one of my favorite ways and how we describe how God is working in our lives. For me personally, that still small voice isn't really in my head because I overthink everything, so I can't really like trust some of the voices in my head sometimes. So the still small voice for me is more of like that gut feeling, right? You know that gut feeling when you know that there's something that you're supposed to do or something that you're supposed to say. Right, I got that gut feeling um, when I was called to change my career path into ministry. Um, I get that gut feeling when there are times where I'm in a room and somebody's not being listened to or not being acknowledged, and it's my job to go and to be the person to listen to and acknowledge them. But I've always wondered, where did we get the phrase, that's still a small voice? Where in the Bible does it talk about this? And so this leads us to our story for today. Now, this series in the classics, what I love is that we are going through stories that some of us know and we are remembering what we learned from these stories. Maybe we're learning new things, but also some of you have shared with me that you are learning things that you maybe didn't know before or you didn't come from a house where the Bible was taught from a really young age. And so um, on the internet, there are a ton of diagrams that outline the Old Testament And I have done my best to make one that hopefully will be simple enough for what we're doing. Um, So if we want to go ahead and put that up just to let it be overwhelming for the first five seconds, we're going to look at it. But we're going to walk through this together for a second. (laughs) Totally fine. I can act out the diagram if we have to. Okay, we are... Just imagine a diagram, okay? It's color-coded and everything. It was great. It was some of my best work. Um, Okay, so we're going to walk through the entire Old Testament. 
and I'm going to attempt to do it in five minutes or less. And they did not teach me how to do this in seminary, so just be aware, okay? So, if I had the diagram, it would be on the top left-hand corner, and it would say Genesis. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and we had a sermon last week on the third chapter of Genesis, and we talked about what's actually in that story, but also like what we put into the story from art or from culture. And so we covered that there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis that cover about 2,400 years and 23 generations from Adam all the way to Joseph. And so there are some recognizable stories in Genesis that are, again, color-coded. Here we go. Just 10 points for our tech team. Thank you, boys. That is not easy work, and if you think it is, I will sign you up to do it next week. Okay, so top left-hand corner, color-coded Genesis, right? Last week's sermon is Genesis 3. So I put in blue some of the more recognizable stories or stories with musicals that match the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham. Remember, and he tells, um, God tells Abraham he's going to give him a lot of descendants, and then Abraham doesn't trust God, and so we get this whole Isaac Ishmael thing that now even still today leads to the current conflict between the Israeli and the Palestinian people. And then the story of Joseph and his technicolor coat that you can watch in Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical that's wildly not accurate, but super fun. Um, and I know more about it from the musical than I think I do the Bible, like some of us. And so all of that is in Genesis. There's a ton that happens in that one book alone. If you've ever woken up one New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and said, I'm going to read the whole Bible, and you get through Genesis, you're like, wow, that took a long time. Genesis covers a lot of stuff. So right at the end of Genesis is when the Hebrew people have been taken into slavery by the Egyptians. So now we are in this time of Egyptian slavery. They're held captive, and this is the start of the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is one, if you've gone to VBS, or you've been around children's Sunday school, maybe as a teacher, we talk a lot about the book of Exodus, right? This is the story of Moses. This is how Moses leads the people out, and he goes to Pharaoh. Did anybody else ever have the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Yeah, a, yeah, 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 good times, right? So, so that is all that's happening in the book of Exodus, and so we've got Moses, and then Right as the people are about to enter the promised land, they're literally right on the line of it, Moses passes off the leadership to Joshua. Now, what do we know about Joshua? There's a song. What's the song? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And what did Joshua and the people have to do for the walls to come tumbling down? What? Y'all are lucky I don't make you walk around the church seven times today, just to remember. And shout and the trumpets, everything, right? So we've got Joshua. So the people have finally arrived. They are in the promised land. This whole time, from Abraham all the way down to Joshua, they've been camping. Now I know that we love our vacations in this church, and we love our family time, and some of y'all are like me, and you love camping. However, it is a long time to go camping with just your family. So. We're right on the precipice of the promised land. We're gonna build houses. We're gonna go to friends' houses to be able to visit and get away from our family. And this is the time where the Hebrew people are now called the Israelites. 
and they establish permanent residence, right? They're able to put an actual address on their mail, and they decide that they need a way that they need to govern themselves. So God appoints judges. And that's where we're here in the green circle now, in the book of Judges, which was delightfully named, so we knew what was going on. And so the judges serve as this middle person between God and the people. The judge receives a word from God for the people and gives it to them. So one of the stories in Judges that you probably know is a guy named Samson. And watch this, kids. Where does Samson get his strength from? His hair. hair. Did y'all know that that is a Bible trivia question every week in Children's Sunday School? You should sign up to teach it if you don't know. Um, Our kids know that, right? So Samson and Delilah, if you've ever seen the opera, you know how terribly that story goes. But God works with the judges to talk to the people. And so after the time of judges, the Israelite people start to really um, complain. And through all of this, they complain about everything, um, just like we do. And uh, they decide that they want to start having kings. But they want to have kings, not because kings are cool, but because, well, everyone else in the world has kings. Now, we all have heard the story in elementary school, right? Just because everyone else is doing it does not mean that you should do it. So God said, fine, I will give you kings, but they're going to have some prophets with them because prophets are able to listen to me a little bit better. All of the phones are about to go off. Um, just so we're all aware. Adam, that might be mine. Um, so, they give in to peer pressure, right? They want to have kings, and so God says, okay, fine, but I'm giving you prophets. And so, we are going to have an entire sermon just on prophets on July 31st, and we are going to learn about the jobs that they had as the messengers of God, because they're a little bit different than the judges are. So, during the time of kings and prophets, Because they gave in to peer pressure, everything went mostly terrible. And the kingdom actually split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And sometimes in the Bible when you read this, the northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah, which is why the Bible gets super confusing because Israel is what starts in Judges but also becomes the northern kingdom. And so during this time when that is split in two, there are books of the Bible that can be really confusing if you're reading them in order because this time is written in a couple of different books that aren't necessarily like the most chronological. So 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles all have these stories about the different kings and the kingdoms, the two kingdoms and the prophets that are kind of assigned to keep these kings in line. And so in a few weeks, we're also going to have a a sermon specifically on the prophet Solomon and the wisdom that he brought to King Saul and to King David. So that's going to be on the 24th, just so you can kind of see where we are in the timeline here. So, how'd I do? That was a little long. For today's scripture, we are in the bottom on this teal box. And we are following the story of King Ahab, who ruled over the northern kingdom. And in a few weeks, we are going to have the story of the prophet Jonah, who's right after this time of Elijah and King Ahab. 
Okay. So we all have a little bit of an idea of where we are now. So let's talk about the character of Elijah and review his story up until this point. Elijah is one of the boldest and most direct characters in the Bible. So for my bold and direct people, if you need some inspiration for how you live your life, Elijah is a great example. If you remember our story a couple of weeks ago in the classic sermon series where we talked about the transfiguration of Jesus, who were the two people that appeared next to Jesus when this happened? Moses and Elijah. Good. You guys are so paying attention. I love it. So Elijah is one of those prophets that appears with Jesus, and he is a very well-respected prophet. In fact, he is one of the only characters in the entire scripture that appears in the New Testament, the Jewish Talmud, the Muslim Quran, and the Book of Mormon. Now here's the thing. Anytime that I see a story or a character that Jews, Muslims, and Christians get along with what happened and who existed, I take that as a pretty serious deal. And it's something to pay really close attention to. And so Elijah, his name means my God is Yahweh or my God is God. And his entire life actually follows the theme of his name. Because Elijah, the majority of his ministry is spent convincing people that God is the real God. And Elijah would have pretty serious work if he was doing ministry in 2022. Elijah was the type of prophet that reminded people to recognize whom they worship is what is important, not how. So Elijah's story, if you want some homework this afternoon, can be found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17 through 19, just two chapters in the Bible. And if you're interested in reading it later, we can kind of talk about how um, we're going to summarize what happened up to this section for chapter 19 that we read this morning. So Elijah announces a drought for the northern kingdom. Now, I'm from West Texas, and so announcing a drought is usually not a big deal because that's just announcing the obvious. However, when you're in the desert, you've established permanent residence. There's a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. There's been judges. There's been prophets. There's been problems. And then you come out and say, it's not going to rain for a long, long time you're not exactly the guy that's going to get voted class favorite. Because in that culture, in the desert, no rain meant no life. It meant an announcement of suffering. How would it feel if I got up here and announced we all were going to suffer in various ways for the next five years? Who would come back next week? Or you all email David and say, bro, Carolyn's lost it. So Elijah has to run away because they're super upset with him for announcing a drought. And so God tells Elijah to run away and to hide. And on his journey, he stops and he meets a widow and he is welcomed into her house and he performs two miracles in the widow's house. The first is that he multiplies her food source, which does that sound like a story we've heard in our classic sermon series? Yep, the one from VBS Kids, right? Where Jesus multiplied some food by a super-duper miracle. But then the widow's son dies. And Elijah is able to resurrect him, which 
Who does that sound like? Died and then resurrected? You have the right answer? Jesus! Right? So, Elijah is welcomed into this home. He performs two miracles that foreshadow Jesus, which tells you that God is serious about this guy, Elijah, right? And so the drought ends a couple years later, and Elijah gets back to work. He resurfaces, right? Um, He can come out of hiding. And he realizes that in in the course of about the three to five years that he was hiding at the widow's house, the people in their desperation and in their suffering and in their drought have turned their attention to other things besides God. And in this example, they've turned their attention to other gods besides God. Now, if we go back to this diagram that we have from the beginning of the Old Testament, can anyone tell me if there's any color-coded circle where God wasn't there? The Israelite people have been with God from Adam, from Joseph, from Abraham, all the way through for generations upon generations. And then a five-year drought causes them to completely shift direction. And so Elijah has to prove that God is God to the people. Now, there are a lot of scenes in the Bible that I imagine to be like a movie. So for our purposes today, I want you to get yourself ready. I want you to play the beginning of Top Gun music in your head because we are going to turn this story of Elijah together into a cinematic experience, okay? So Elijah calls a contest between the gods that the people have been worshiping and the God that Elijah knows to be the one true God. Now, when you call a contest like this and you're a prophet, Who gets more upset than anyone? The king. Kings don't really like God. Um, They don't. They really don't. don't, They don't do well with God, right? That's why they have prophets to help them out. So King Ahab does not have a very good relationship with Elijah, and so literally, and imagine this. I want you to imagine this scene. Elijah walks into the kingdom, and King Ahab, and I imagine he's just like sitting, like with his arms kind of folded, and he's just kind of slumpy, and he goes, ugh, that troublemaker of Israel is here. And then Elijah, because we're really good with comebacks in the Bible, Elijah says, I'm not the troublemaker of Israel, you're the troublemaker of Israel. And so Elijah calls this contest where we're going to prove the gods of Baal versus God or Yahweh. And Elijah gets to establish the rules of the contest, And so, like any good playground game, there are guidelines. So, there is one prophet for God, which is Elijah, and 450 prophets for Baal. So, Elijah says, that's fine. It's a fair contest. No big deal. So, they go up on top of this mountain, and Elijah says, bring two bulls, and we will set them on their mountain The prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, will prepare this bull to be sacrificed. And then Elijah, all by himself, will prepare this bull to be sacrificed. But they're not going to start any fire to sacrifice the bull. And Elijah says, that shouldn't be a big deal for Baal, right? He could make fire totally appear. And so each team gets to have their way in which 
they would sacrifice to God or to Baal. So imagine this. 450 people just to be prophets of Baal. The rest of the people are watching what's happening on the side of the mountain, and they're preparing this, and they're getting it ready, and they start, and, and again, right, we're, we're doing a movie here, so think about music to, to create some, some tension and some, some leading action, and you're on the edge of your seat, and you're, you're tense. And so Elijah's a gentleman. He lets the prophets of Baal go first. And so 450 people are surrounding this bull. They are calling out to Baal, asking for the thing to catch fire. And can you guess what happens? It doesn't catch fire. Now, bold and direct Elijah is not one to let a good moment pass by without a comment. And so he says to them, why don't you try crying just a little bit louder? Maybe Baal walked away or he was meditating or maybe he's taking a nap and you could wake him up. And so these poor prophets give in to Elijah's ridiculousness, and they start to cry even louder, louder than the fireworks. And guess what happens? It still doesn't catch fire. So at the end of the day, they finally give up. Their sacrifice isn't going to work. But the game's not over, because we still have Yahweh, or God's sacrifice, that Elijah's in charge of. Now, this is Elijah's turn, and name to me, name to me, your favorite halftime speeches from sports movies. Hoosiers, good, yes. What? Cupcakes, okay, I believe you. Miracle, who do you play for? You've got a hand raised, tell me. Pizza, yes. Uh, I'm from West Texas, and so I'm a Friday Night Lights girl, right? Billy Bob Thornton goes in and talks about being perfect doesn't mean the scoreboard. It means that you went out there and you looked next to your Conrad and you did the best that you could, right? Or has anybody here ever seen Braveheart? What do we yell at the end of the speech of Braveheart? Freedom! Cupcakes! So it's Elijah's turn, and the halftime speech is happening, and we're getting ready to go, and we're chanting, Rudy, Rudy, or Elijah, Elijah. And so Elijah, he's not going to let this good moment pass by, because there's 450 people over here who have failed, thousands more who are watching this. And so, and bless him, like, I would hate this, by the way, if I were not Elijah. But he says, why don't y'all come in closer? Just make sure, make sure you can see what's happening here. And Elijah uh, digs a trench around the altar. He stacks 12 stones on top of one another, representing the 12 original tribes of Israel. And then he tells the people to go get four giant buckets of water and pour it on the sacrifice. Now, what do we know about water and fire? They don't go well together, right? If something is wet, Boy Scouts, Eagle Scouts, Girl Scouts, if wood is wet, is it going to catch fire? No, big negative. Now, Elijah, again, not a guy to let a good moment pass by. So he asked people to come pour four buckets of water on the sacrifice, and you know what he does after that? He tells them to go get four more buckets. And they pour it on the sacrifice, and twice 
for Elijah is just not enough. So he goes for the Holy Trinity number, and he has them pour four more buckets of water on top of the sacrifice a third time. Can you feel, like, the, the music and the drums and the tension, like the halftime speech that's happening here? So Elijah, in this moment of truth, after all of this setup, prays. And the fire starts at the bottom of the offering. And of course, the offering catches fire, but God takes it even further and burns up everything that Elijah had set up. And it says in Scripture that it had dried up all of the water that was around the offering. Elijah has had to prove and has proved that God is the one true God. And this is a super great victorious moment, right? This is the goal at the buzzer, the, the we winning over the Russians, the Friday Night Lights state, we won state, Rudy, Rudy, right? And bless it, poor Elijah, that's not what happens. Because King Ahab's wife is a woman named Jezebel. And you've probably heard some stories or at least heard the name in weird songs where people are saying horrible things about women because Jezebel was known for killing prophets. Now remember, God's rising up prophets to help the kings remember to make moral decisions. And so literally within about five minutes of Elijah proving that God is God, he receives a death threat from Jezebel. And so he super duper runs away right? Like, dude, takes off like Forrest Gump running for the wilderness. And he starts begging God just to let him go to heaven. Just be done. He's scared. And of course, he runs into the wilderness where there's no food or water. And so Elijah, in all of his boldness and directness and maturity, sits by a tree to pout. And so an angel appears and gives him some, some food and some water, and Elijah, this guy, receives miracle food, miracle water. You know what he does after that? He's go back, he goes back to sleep, takes another nap. And so the angel appears to him and gives him food and water again and says, like, okay, you're going to have to get a move on. And so that angel tells him where to go, and he goes to Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. And this is the same mountain that Moses got the Ten Commandments from God. So this mountain is really important to the Israelite people. And so Elijah, no thanks to his own work, by the way, with a full belly and a rested body, walks into this cave at Mount Horeb because, right, caves would be cooler and a good place to rest and to find some shelter. And he hears God say, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah begins to complain. He whines and says that he is the only prophet left in the whole wide world for God. And that the Israelite people were worshiping other gods and God's prophets are being killed. He even says again at the end of his complaint that he is the only prophet of God. And this is where our scripture for today comes in. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. So God said, 
Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting, pe- splitting the mountains and breaking the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was a sound of sheer silence. So this is where we're going to have some audience participation moment for just a second, okay? Because I want to I create this moment. So we are going to make wind noises as loud as we possibly can. Ready? Go. Super big, louder wind noises. Louder wind noises. Okay, now make an earthquake noise. And we can't set the church on fire, so we're just going to pretend that that's happening, okay? Oh my gosh, yeah, fire, 911, no. And then there was silence. Elijah is bold and direct. He has been able to bring the word of God to people in miracles, in resurrection, in large displays of fire. This guy threatens drought, and drought happens. And all of his journey, all of his ministry as a prophet so far has been filled with these big, loud, whooshing, earthquake, fire moments so that he can speak to the people. And Elijah is coming off this massive victory and the anxiety of a death threat. And he has been on the brink of starvation. And God has provided Elijah with food and water. But God still takes a moment to teach Elijah a lesson. And this is a prophet. This is the guy appointed by God to be with the king. But even the prophet doesn't know everything about God. God tells Elijah to go stand on a mountain and thank God Elijah follows his instructions. Right, and let's do it again. The big wind came and it was so strong that it was breaking parts of the mountain, but Elijah did not hear God. So then came the earthquake and the earthquake was so strong, but Elijah did not hear God. And there came a fire. Ah, fire, yeah. But Elijah did not hear God. And then after the fire came total and complete silence. One of the things I'm loving about this sermon series is how many of you have been so generous in telling me and sharing that you are learning new ways to think about these stories. So many of you last week were able to um, so humbly admit that you hadn't thought about Genesis 3 in ways that maybe we had talked about together. Elijah's story is proof that none of us are ever done learning about God. God is never done showing you new things. Elijah was used to be in this life and to be in this ministry where God showed up in big earthquake, fire, firework ways with large, boisterous miracles and killer use of pyrotechnics. But in this story, God shows up in the silence and comforts Elijah. 
because it's right after this silence that Elijah receives his final instruction for his ministry, which is to go and find Elisha, S-H-A, and anoint him to be the next prophet of Israel. In this story, Elijah gets a new way of thinking about God, a new way of experiencing God, a new way of listening for God in the silence, and a greater understanding of the tender side of God. I think sometimes we pride ourselves in being a little too much like Elijah. We get really caught up in searching for, and even those of us that plan worship, manufacturing these large church experiences because we believe that God can only work through a super loud song with multiple part harmony. We believe that God can only work through a sermon that's given on Christmas Eve or Easter. We believe that God can only work the last night of church camp. We believe that God can only work through certain people who are ordained or sit on a church staff. But just like Elijah, we need to remember that God works in the smaller things too. God is working when you volunteer to teach Sunday school lessons to our children and to our teenagers. God works when you come to church on any random Sunday besides Christmas Eve or Easter. We're still open then. And you go sit in your small group and you just talk about your life. God is working in the parts of worship that maybe we don't pay attention to, like greeting one another, turning to your neighbor and smiling at them. Do it now. Turn to your neighbor and smile at them. (laughs) God is working when we hear liturgy. And if you're a traditional person and you haven't taken the time to appreciate liturgy, I invite you to go look it up a little bit. God works in those first few pages in the hymnal, too. And we're going to move to communion here in a moment. And if you don't think God's not working in communion, you've really missed out. But God is working in silence. God is that still, small voice that we've talked about maybe in our tradition, but comes in either for some of you, a nice little thought in your head, some of us, gut feelings. God is moving through the work of the Holy Spirit, just like we talked about at Pentecost a few weeks ago in our classics sermon series. The Spirit is moving even if we can't see it. God is speaking even in the silence. Silence does not mean that God is not working. And sometimes silence is what we need from God. So we're going to take a poll in the room, and I need you all to actually participate to make my point here. So raise your hand if in one, within about the course of one week you think you get an hour of silence. Silence. <laughs> it's weird y'all didn't hear me say silence, squire. All right, so keep your hands up if you get an hour. Who gets 30 minutes? Who gets 10 minutes? Who gets five minutes? Okay, I think we have everybody at five minutes. Okay. I know, I, I know, I know that it's harder than ever to find silence. Even during summer, I think it used to be called summer break, um, 
it's not. Uh, all of us are busy with wonderful and noisy activities. And even activities that could lend themselves to be silent, like a round of golf or driving your, work, your car to work, are filled with noise and chatter and maybe music or a podcast or the news. But I wonder if in all of this noise, we are missing out on larger parts of God. And so this week, I think we can all commit, I think at 10 minutes, I had most everyone. 10 minutes of silence. Now for some of you more, I need to be doing something ADHD types. Your silence can be folding the laundry or doing the dishes, but no TV, no music, no talking, and please, for heaven's sake, just put your phone in another room. Just you and God and silence. I worked in youth ministry for about five years, and one of the things that I would always do when we were on a trip was I would get out about an hour before we had to wake up any of the kids. And I would go sit somewhere by myself and I would watch the sun come up. And this was a practice that I started kind of as a joke because truly in my heart of hearts, even though none of you believe me, I am an introvert. Um, And I can tell you, you can believe me because I'll tell you right now, Sunday mornings are exhausting for me. David Lesner is an extrovert and he leaves here so excited, ready to run about 10 miles on Sunday mornings. I go home and take a nap. So when I was working with teenagers, I claimed that I needed that hour because I had to start the day with as full of batteries I could possibly get, and that battery only gets charged by myself. But what I found was that I heard more clearly from God in that one hour than I did the rest of the day. I got that gut feeling that I received God's presence in those quiet moments every morning. I was able to ask and receive what I needed every morning, which when I worked with teenage was usually more energy or patience, but also sometimes stillness, discernment, the ability to know in the moment what to do. I realized that I got to see more of God in the silence. And I was blessed by the silence. So this week, I want you to find 10 minutes where you can see what God might speak to you, what you might learn about God that you already know and need to relearn, or even something new. And as we move into our time of communion, I want you to think about those seemingly simple and even almost mundane processes that we take part in in worship. And I want you to think about how we might see God in everything that we're doing, in the big and grandiose things, but also in the smaller, more simple ones. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways in which you speak to us. Through loud and boisterous miracles and fire, but also in more simple things. We thank you for the ways that we see you in silence.
As we try to practice that this week, we ask that you would honor our trying. Show us more of you, the parts of you that we need the most right now. Be with us as we moved in this time of communion together and keep our hearts open to the simple ways that you work in our lives. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at CreekwoodUMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.